0: I suppose tonight's topic, as timely as it is, it actually serves nicely to uh, select somewhere either in our Bibles uh, and put some notes down. We might call them a Bible box or some marginal notes. And what we're going to be looking at tonight in terms of our subject, Britain and Bible prophecy, can be easily sort of uh, segmented into these three things, which should sort of give us a good framework. Because what we're going to be looking at tonight is Britain of yesterday, what the Bible says about Britain. Britain of today, uh, what we might find in the news and media, and then we'll come back to the Bible, Britain of tomorrow, what God says will be fulfilled with his will, with this nation we're going to look at. Now if you come with me to Genesis chapter 10, this might be a good place to maybe make some marginal notes of what we'll consider tonight, because this really is the introduction to our topic when we consider at least the nation of Britain itself. And so because Genesis chapter 10 actually has the first rendering of this nation, it might serve as a good place which we'll remember uh, down the line of where we made these notes. It's always important to sort of not only choose a place to make the marginal notes, but to remember where we made them. So in Genesis chapter 10, you can't help but notice that the chapter begins in a somewhat familial way as many of the chapters in Genesis begin, and it's this way, verse 1. It says, now these are the generations, and in chapter 10 of Genesis, these will be the generations of the sons of Noah. Now, just perhaps keep your pencil or a hand in Genesis chapter 10, but just come back to Genesis chapter 2, just a few chapters earlier, just so we can sort of pick up this idea of how God begins his holy word. You see, Genesis is, as it were, the sort of the roots of the Bible. And here's what it says in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 4. It says, these are the generations, but not this time of Noah, but the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And here in Genesis chapter 2, God is going to detail The generations that would come forward throughout the heavens and the earth that God had created. If you come to Genesis chapter 5, again we see this sort of introductory comment to the beginning of these chapters in early Genesis. And here's what we read in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 5. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him. And verse two sort of elucidates uh, the furthering of this generation. Male and female created God them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And so now if we just come back to Genesis chapter 10, it sort of gives us a helpful sort of thread that's beginning here in the uh, early chapters of Genesis. Because in verse one, when it opens in chapter 10. Now, these are the generations. It's not the generations of the heavens and the earth or the generations of Adam as we saw in Genesis 5. Here in verse 1 of Genesis 10 it's the generations of Noah. And that word generations is the same in Genesis 2 and Genesis 5 and it simply means, verse 1 of Genesis 10, generations simply means descendants. So these will be the descendants that come from Noah. Now here they are, verse 1. We have Shem and Ham and Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. In verse 2, it says the sons of Japheth were these, Gomer and Magog, Medei and Javan, and Tubal, Meshech and Tiras. Now you might wonder why in verse 1 it says Shem, Ham, and Japheth, but then in verse 2 it begins with Japheth. There's a reason for that. In verse 2, it begins with the sons of Japheth because he was the firstborn. So verse 1 is sort of uh, hearkening to Shem that he would have a special privilege, a promise given to him, and that's for another story, but for our purposes here tonight, looking at the beginning of Britain in Bible prophecy, the sons of Japheth in verse 2, they're first, because after all, he was the firstborn of Noah. And so verse 3 continues with the sons, that, uh, the descendants of Japheth, the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Riphath, and Tugarmah, and the sons of Javan, Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Donanim. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands. Everyone after his tongue after their families in their nations. And so sort of put this together in uh, pictorial form, here on the screen, we have Japheth's sons, or the son of Noah, the firstborn. And so what we actually have is Japheth, he was the firstborn of Noah, and he had seven sons. And so there they are listed uh, horizontally, beginning with Gomer and finishing with Tirus. But right there in the middle, we have this son Javan, or Javan. And he had sons himself, and it begins with Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodamin. Now, the second born to Javan was this son named Tarshish, and it's there in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 4. And Tarshish will be a focus for us because we'll see as we go along that Tarshish will come to represent the nation of Britain in the Bible. Now, what does Tarshish mean? Well, it's a bit tricky to sort of understand what Tarshish means because when you look at the lexicons, they seem to have a slight variance uh, between each of them. So I'll give you a suggestion, and on your own, you could perhaps go uh, look at the lexicons for yourself. But Tarshish, according to Eaton's Bible Dictionary, means the seacoast. And so from that, we can expect that this uh, nation— uh, which would come from uh, this man, Tarshish, the son of Japheth, would be dwelling in sort of a geography of a seacoast. Now, the reason why that might be supported, if you look back at Genesis 10 in verse 5, is that it'll be through these sons of Japheth, verse 5, that the isles, or the islands, and therefore the seacoast, will populate the Gentiles, and they'll divide up amongst all the nations. So it seems to be at least a good start in terms of how we might define the nation of Tarshish. And so these are Japheth's sons. Now furthermore, once the flood had concluded and they had relinquished themselves from the ark, these sons uh, of Noah would have ventured and populated the world, because as it were, there were only eight humans alive at that time. And what we actually find out through uh, through um, anthropology, and obviously through the Bible, is that Japheth, Shem, and Ham ventured to different locations. So Japheth in the red ventured uh, to the north and to the west into what we'd call Europe. Shem, he sort of ventured towards the east, and he stayed in the vicinity of the Middle East, we might call it. And then Ham, he ventured south into the coastal areas and populated Africa. And that just sort of gives us at least a sort of a rough sketch of where these sons eventually ventured to. Now, in the Abingdon commentary on page 227, it says about Japheth's sons this, that there are three main groups of peoples, northern, southern, and eastern. The first are derived from Japheth, the second from Ham, the third from Shem. But most of the names in the first group are familiar to us from other sources. They all belong to Asia Minor, or the Mediterranean, or to the coastal lands beyond the sea. Now, This is really nothing new. If you sort of look at a historical commentary or anthropology, We learn that Japheth, he ventured to the north and to the west, and he came to populate the lands of Asia Minor, came to populate the lands of Europe, and even beyond the Mediterranean. And so this is where we get the sort of venturing further of this individual Tarshish. Now, when you venture, you have to produce, uh, as it were, a series of trading, okay? Now, this illustration here is quite good, because what it does is, in ancient times... It gives us a sense of the trading routes that would have been used throughout all the Mediterranean and beyond. And there at the top of the screen where the legend is, it gives you the various uh, commodities that would have been traded. So, for example, we would have had gold and silver, copper, lead, tin, metal objects, purple for dye, salt, grains, oil, ivory, and even human trafficking. But what's interesting to note about uh, this particular uh, illustration is they venture all really from the area of Israel and move outward. Well, if they're going to move outward, then you would presume that they would come back inward. And we'll touch upon this illustration in just a few moments. Now, if you're gonna have trade and commercial trade on the sea, you have to have ships. So if you come with me to 1 Kings chapter 10, We sort of move forward in the story of Tarshish, and therefore our story as it pertains to Britain in the Bible. Now here's what it says in 1 Kings chapter 10. So in 1 Kings chapter 10, we are moving into the time when Israel is a nation, they're in the land, and King Solomon is on the throne. And here's what we read in 1 Kings chapter 10 about the nation of Tarshish as it pertains to the ships and the various trading that would have went on. It says in 1 Kings chapter 10, in verse 14, it says, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 603 score and six talents of gold. And besides that, he had merchantmen and of the traffic of the spice merchants and of all the kings of Arabia and of the governors of the country. And so you can't help but notice that in Solomon's time, trading was quite an essential thing that uh, took place in his kingdom. And further to that, in verse 22 of 1 Kings chapter 10, speaking of Solomon, it says, the king had at sea a navy of Tarshish with the navy of Hiram. And once in three years came the navy of Tarshish bringing gold and silver, ivory and and apes and peacocks. And what we learn about uh, these ships in particular, these Tarshish ships, uh, we're sort of helped along here in the IVBP Bible Background Commentary on page 431. It says about these Tarshish ships, the mention of large cargo vessels known as Tarshish ships seems to indicate a type of ship employed in coastal trade. And here, the chronicler, refers to ships dispatched to Tarshish, a source of precious metals, as in Jeremiah 10, verse 9, and precious stones, as in Ezekiel 28, verse 13, probably located in the Western Mediterranean or even beyond. And furthermore, and you might like to do this uh, yourself, is if you actually look at uh, sort of Tarshish in a lexicon, or just search it up, the word Tarshish in the Bible, you can't help but notice that there is, uh, without uh, deviation, a certain thread that exists with Tarshish. Because in 1 Kings 22, verse 48, they're known as the ships of Tarshish. In Second Chronicles 9, verse 21, they're known as the ships of Tarshish. In Psalm 48, verse 7, they're known as the ships of Tarshish. In Isaiah 2, verse 16, they're known as the ships of Tarshish. In Isaiah 23 and verse 1, they're known as the ships of Tarshish. And in Isaiah 60, verse 9, they're known as the ships of Tarshish. And you see, what we sort of learn about this is that Tarshish, from its earliest days, in its isles, in its coastal regions, it had nothing to do but build ships. Because if you want to trade and you live on an island, there's only one way to get that commodity off your island, and that's to build a ship. And so when you look through Tarshish throughout all the scripture, you can't help but notice that one dominant theme does arise, that they had ships. And they used those ships. They used those ships to bring all their various goods, gold and silver and et cetera, all throughout the then known world. Now, not only did Tarshish have ships, but if you come with me all the way to Ezekiel 27, They had great power and influence in terms of how they were a key cog in the economical affairs of the day. So Ezekiel chapter 27, and here's what we learn about the economics of Tarshish, all the way in Ezekiel chapter 27. So it says in uh, verse uh, 1 of Ezekiel 27, It says that the word of the Lord came again unto Ezekiel, saying, Now, thou son of man, take up a lamentation for Tyrus, and say unto Tyrus, O thou that art situate at the entry of the sea, which art a merchant of the people for many isles. Thus saith the Lord God, O Tyrus, thou hast said, I am of perfect beauty. Now here in ezekiel 27 god is directing ezekiel to go and prophesy against the city of tyre that would have been on the eastern shore of the mediterranean And in verse 3 it says about tyre that they were a merchant among the merchant and they were a destination for many people who would venture from the isles and so if you were a merchant trader and you had ships like tarshish did you certainly wanted to venture into Tyre. It would be one of those port cities where you knew you could bring your gold and your silver and all your various commodities. And so here in Ezekiel twenty-seven, Ezekiel is told to prophesy against them. Now here's one of their trading partners, Tyre. In verse twelve, it says, Tarshish was thy merchant by reason of the multitude of all kind of riches. And so in verse twelve of Ezekiel twenty-seven, It says certainly that Tarshish would come to Tyre, it would harbor itself, it would unload all of its goods and its riches. And in verse 12 of Ezekiel 27, we actually get a sort of a key commodity, a group of commodities that Tarshish was especially known for. Because in verse 12 of Ezekiel 27, it says, that Tarshish and their ships would bring all these riches, silver, iron, tin, and lead, and they would trade in all of Tyre's fares. Now, Tarshish had an extreme power when it came to the economical affairs of the day. So just to sort of help us get an appreciation of this, In Unger's Bible Dictionary, page 1070 and 1071, Merrill Unger says this, the term Tarshish is employed quite a few times in the Old Testament in connection with ships, merchants, and trade. Now, this navy or fleet of Tarshish is better rendered as a smeltery or a refining fleet which brought smelted metal home from colonial mines, These smeltery fleets, or Tarshish ships, hauled material from mining stations in the Western Mediterranean and beyond. And so all through history, we have these commentators that suggest that Tarshish was not only located within the Mediterranean, but well beyond, that they brought all of these commodity goods, in particular, these smelted or refined goods, these metals that would be brought and traded. So if we come back to our illustration of the trading routes, what's fascinating about all the commercialism that would go on in the Mediterranean is there really is only one certain place in all of these trading routes where you were certain to find the commodities that are found in Ezekiel 27 and verse 12. Because if you look all the way into the north, where Europe leaves the land and becomes the United Kingdom, you find lead and you find tin. So if you wanted to find these commodities and you wanted to be certain that you could trade in them, well, you had to have these Tarshish ships come into the Mediterranean and trade with you. Now, if you're like me, you might read in verse 12 of Ezekiel 27, you think silver, yes, I know that. Iron, yeah, I know that. Lead, I know that, and they traded in all thy fares. But if you're like me, and you're not a metallurgist, you think, what's the big deal about tin? The interesting thing about tin is tin is one of the key components if you want to eventually accomplish brass. And, well, we know throughout all of scripture, and even through Israel's history, that there was lots of usage for brass. So, boy, if you wanted tin, and you want to eventually accomplish brass, they had to go one with the other. So Tarshish was quite an important cog in the economical affairs that happened in the region of Mediterranean. And so they were not only in the trading lanes, but Tarshish was a certain trader within these times. Now in Elpis Israel, an exposition of the kingdom of God, John Thomas says this in page 447 and 448. He says, Tarshish was a country, not a city, whose merchants frequented the Tyrian fairs. And so addressing Tyre, the prophet Ezekiel says, Tarshish was thy merchant by reason of the multitude of all kinds of riches, with silver, iron, tin, and lead, and they traded in thy fairs. These metals are the products of Britain, celebrated even by then the Phoenicians and they called it the land of tin. And here this is found in Elpis Israel Exposition of the Kingdom of God. Now this I found fascinating, looking at tin, sort of when you find a a component of the Bible which you're unfamiliar with, you can easily dismiss it and move along, or you can sort of plumb the depths of it and uh, investigate. And so when I did some investigating on uh, this uh, commodity of tin, you come into uh, the areas of where the source of tin would have come from, to sort of validate what we read in the Bible. Now, uh, this is an actual uh, peer-reviewed article. And this is, uh, was handed in in 2010, but it was certified in 2011 at the University of Oxford. And it was published in the uh, periodical uh, Archaeometry. And uh, these images down here, uh, to scale with the rulers there, are actually composites which they found, um, the earliest known in the Bronze Age. And here's what they say. It says, the only Bronze Age available evidence thus points to Cornwall as the sole early source of tin. And I find that keyword, sole, is quite important because it wasn't as if tin was readily available then throughout the known world. In fact, if you wanted tin, and therefore to uh, come up with the other commodities that were derived with tin you had to find them in Cornwall. Now here on the right side of the screen you have sort of a, an, an island impression of uh, the United Kingdom uh, with Ireland there in the bottom left. But this little box here is, uh, is sort, of, uh, sort of circling off or squaring off the area of Cornwall. Those would have been very suitable to have the ships uh, come around on the coastal sides of Cornwall and they would be able to use and uh, ship and trade their tin. So, now what we have is the Bible's Tarshish fully explained. We have their origins in Genesis 10. We have their location in 1st Kings 10 very far a three-year journey there and back we have their merchandise here in Ezekiel 27 in verse 12 we even have their transportation their glorious ships in Ezekiel 27 and verse 25 but what we want to do now is we want to sort of move away from yesterday and move into today as it pertains to Britain and Bible prophecy and what we're gonna do is we're gonna to come to Ezekiel chapter 38 to look at Britain's allies as it pertains to today. So if you just come with me forward a little bit in Ezekiel to Ezekiel chapter 38. This is where we learn of uh, Britain's allies as it pertains to today. So the very well-known Ezekiel 38, but for our purposes has a few details we want to uncover. It begins in verse 1, Ezekiel 38, that the word of the Lord came again unto me, Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So Ezekiel 38 is really Ezekiel on one side and Gog on the other. And Ezekiel, directed by the word of the Lord, is going to prophesy against this individual Gog. So two sides. Ezekiel is told, verse three of Ezekiel 38, say, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, and all thine army, horses and horsemen, and all them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his bands, the house of Tugarma of the north quarters, and all his bands, and many people with thee. And you can't help but notice that as you traverse verses 4 and verses 5, that the setting of these verses is not that the nations are being spoken against, It's that the nations are prepared for war. Because after all, they have bucklers and they have shields and they're all handling swords. So this is a time of great turmoil. This is a time of war in which this uh, Ezekiel 38 will take place. And Ezekiel is told to prophesy against them. But what else is uh, important to note is uh, from our knowledge of Genesis chapter 10, When we read of the Meshechs and the Tubals and the Magogs, when we read of the Gomers and the Tagarmas, these are all sons of Japheth. So when Ezekiel is prophesying against Gog and his army, the army of Gog is made up of all these sons of Japheth. Yes, there's a few in there in verse 5, like Persia and Ethiopia and Libya, which are made up of Ham, but the predominant majority of this army will be made up of the sons of Japheth. Now, why that's interesting is because Tarshish is a son of Japheth. So here in Ezekiel 38, will we see Tarshish join this side on Gog? Well, here's what it says in verse 8. It says that this war and this gathering of these armies, verse 8, will come after many days, and Gog shall be visited. It will take place in the latter years that Gog shall come into the land that is brought back from the sword, is gathered out of many people, and the destination will be against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste. But at this time it will be brought forth out of all the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. So here we have the two sides, who makes up the one side, and where they're going. And in verse 13 of Ezekiel 38, it says that Tarshish will stand apart from all these sons of Japheth. Now how do we know that? Because verse 13 of Ezekiel 38 says, that there will be a Sheba and a Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof, and they shall say unto Gog. So now in verse 13, we know that Tarshish will stand aside from the other sons of Japheth. They will make a demarcation that they are not on the same side. Because in verse 13, continuing, Tarshish and Sheba and Dedan will make this proclamation. They will say to Gog and his army, Art thou come to take a spoil? hath so gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, and to take a great spoil. And sort of to help us uh, see this illustrated, what we read here in uh, Ezekiel 38, is this is just a simple way to sort of see the demarcation between, as it were, the two sides that are being spoken of here in this chapter. And they're represented by the nations but not as we might call them today, but how God identifies them in the Bible. And so uh, in the red, we have all these uh, nations. We have uh, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya. But then the sons of uh, Japheth, we have the Tagarma, uh, the Tubal, the Meshech, We have Magog and Gomer. But then in the blue, we'll have, as it were, Sheba and Dedan and Tarshish. And so we clearly have these uh, two sides that will oppose one another at the time of the end. And this is what we actually uh, would expect from various writings, particularly within the Christelphian community. Because again in Elpis Israel, an exposition of the kingdom of God, John Thomas says this on page 298. He says, Britain is not to be included in the ten toes. She is reserved of God to antagonize Russia. And this she'll do, as she did in France, when all Europe was prostrate at the feet of Napoleon Legrand. The ten toes belong to the image as a united dominion. Hence, Britain cannot be included among them unless it is first conquered by the overshadowing power, Gog, which it will not be, as is clearly demonstrable from many parts of divine testimony. So one of our key takeaways from Ezekiel 38 is we have these two sides. The one side is led by Gog and he is leading an army which consists predominantly of sons of Japheth. But then in verse 38, we have Tarshish who will stand opposed. And he will be on the opposite side. And with him will be Sheba and Dedan, young lions that have descended from Britain, etc., etc. And this has been talked about in our community for many, many years. And the Bible supports what we see. Now, so does the news and uh, the information of which we can glean from today. Now, the Brexit vote. It seems uh, quite long ago that uh, we've been even mentioning this word Brexit because it's now going on five years, this term Brexit. Now, here is the actual Brexit vote uh, that took place uh, in 2016. And this was to decide if uh, the United Kingdom should separate itself uh, from the European Union. Now the side that decided to leave was 51.9% and the side that decided to stay or wished to stay was 48.1. So ever so close this vote was and it was uh, quite a topic of uh, considerable importance to uh, those of the UK because nearly uh, uh, three, uh, three quarters of the population turned out to vote. And we can actually work out uh, uh, who voted for what. So the totality of Britain voted this way, 52 to leave and 48 to stay. England was 53% to uh, leave and and 47 to stay. The area of London actually went in reverse. There was a uh, minority of those that wanted to leave and a majority that wanted to stay. Same thing with Scotland. Uh, Wales sided with England, and they went 53% to leave and 48 to stay. And Northern Ireland actually uh, sort of sided, as it were, uh, with London and with Scotland. And it actually even breaks it down further into different counties, depending on where you lived. It actually breaks down the ages of Brexit, and uh, there might be something to the ages. Uh, you can sort of parse out what it all means, but this is how different age groups voted so in the 18 to 24 age, a small a quarter thereabouts said they wanted to leave, but a majority said they wanted to stay. And then as you get from 25 to 34, 35 to 44, 45 to 54, and onwards, you actually see that the older the group was, the more that they were inclined to leave. Now this was uh, split so uh, minutely that they even had talks of even having a a, a re-vote, having actually, as it were, to actually uh, poll uh, the UK to see if they even had the stomach to do a re-vote. And what they actually found is they asked the question, if there were a second EU referendum, how would you vote? And they actually found that 55% of those they polled said they would remain, and 45% of those that they polled said that they would actually leave. Now this gained a lot of momentum to try and actually get a referendum. But of course here we are, Brexit is uh, all but a foregone conclusion, ten days hence. And so here is a really good illustration of the timeline that we've been working with with uh, Brexit. Because as I say, it's uh, coming on now five years since this has uh, been initiated. So here in June 23rd of 2016, the UK votes and they're going to leave the European Union. Uh, In 2017, they triggered what was known as Article 50. And what that meant is they would have to have these talks with the European Union to decide what would it look like to actually leave the European Union. So they had to do a number of things. In 2018, they had to have the UK and European Union agree to draft a withdrawal agreement. European Union leaders would have to approve it. Prime Minister Theresa May, she tried to delay the UK Parliament vote on the deal because there was such consternation. And Theresa May herself faced a no-confidence vote by uh, their version of the political party of the Tories. Now, if we sort of look at here 2019, March 29, March 29, and December 20, what happened is this period right here from 2019 to the end of 2020 was kind of known as a transitional period. And the transitional period of getting all their uh, economical state of affairs in line will conclude in about 10 days on January 1st. So they don't have a deal on January 1st, they don't have a deal. And to uh, certainly complicate matters even worse with the pandemic, um, they've officially now gone into tier four, I believe is the term, which is an utter and complete lockdown. And so they're on an island uh, unto themselves, but certainly, with Bible in hand, we know that this is uh, the divine will. So let's talk about a little bit about uh, how this actually affects the e- economics of the situation. Now here's a little bit of a quiz, and uh, I always like inside-of-the-head quizzes, because then if you get the answer wrong, no one knows you got it wrong. And then you can sort of sit there and think, oh yeah, I kind of got it right. But everyone actually knows, or you know, you got it wrong. So if I were to ask you, what is the number one financial contributor to the European Union, in your head right now, answer, what country would be the number one contributor? Three, two, one. So the answer is the country of Germany. Now, if I asked you to uh, answer in your head, Uh, What is the third most in terms of the economic contributor to the European Union? Ask yourself what country that would be, the third. Okay, three, two, one. And it would be France. And so Germany first, France third, and the UK comes in second. Now, how much do they uh, contribute to the wealth or the economics of the European Union? Well, Germany contributes, uh, they're about 17 billion euros, that's of 2018, the UK contributes almost 10 billion euros. And what I can't help but notice when you sort of look at this chart uh, as it pertains to the 10 toes is you ask yourself, how many blue contributors are there? Well, there are 10. Now, it has nothing, uh, as it were, pertaining to Daniel and the 10 toes, but it just sort of strikes me as odd that there happens to actually be 10 positive contributors to the economical affairs of the European Union. And as you get into the red, that means that you're sort of, as it were, a benefactor, or a a beneficiary, pardon me, of the money coming in. And so to register this, you have Germany, the UK, France, Italy, Netherlands. And on the complete end of the other uh, scale, you have Romania, Portugal, Greece, Hungary, and Poland. And to put uh, the UK's contribution in terms of our numbers in perspective, That would be like giving away $12 billion every year, U.S. dollars. So that's how much they contribute uh, to the European Union. And a large percentage of that never comes back. Now, as it pertains to the British trade, this is a relationship which has been interwoven for many years and will take perhaps many years to unwind, if at all. So where does the U.K. trade? So the bluish green is countries the European Union has trade agreements with, 11%. The purple is the European Union, so 49%. And the red is the rest of the world. So what this is saying is that this purple, 49%, is that this is where the UK does the majority of their trade. So an easy way to look at this is if the UK trades two things, one of them must end up somehow going through the European Union. That's the lot. And it goes both ways. Because this is the exports of goods to the UK, and these are the countries which send their exports to the UK as represented by a percentage. So a percentage of all their exports will go to the UK. So if you're a country like Belgium or the Netherlands or Ireland or Slovakia, you are dealing with some high percentages of your exports as it pertains to your GDP. So this is a very tricky situation which is coming to its conclusion in 10 days. Now here's perhaps some easier numbers to digest. Brexit, what the European Union will lose. So the European Union will lose 13% of its population. The European Union will lose 15% of its gross domestic product. And the European Union will lose 12% of its budget. I thought maybe an easy way to sort of look at this, but if you made 100 grand in a year, it would be like your employer saying, I'm going to pay you $12,000 less. I'm going to pay you 88 grand this year. And If you made 50 grand, it would be like your employer coming to you and saying I'm going to pay you 44 grand. These would be big hits to any individual home to have a decrease in that financial contribution. So this is quite significant when we look at this uh, separation that's going on between the European Union and the UK. Now, what is all the fighting over? Uh, 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 what is all the fighting about? Well, on January 1st 2021, in 10 days, this is what will change uh, for the various citizens involved in the UK and the European Union. So people planning to move between the UK and the EU to live, work and retire will no longer be automatically allowed to do so. Uh, The UK will apply what's known as a points-based immigration system to any EU citizens, i.e. do you have education, do you have a stable job, are you sponsored by someone living in the United Kingdom? Uh, travel rules will change and you will no longer have valid health insurance when you travel. Uh, the UK certainly will no longer make a big annual payments like the 12 billion dollars a year. Arrivals from the UK will stand in a different queue at passport control and have to go through different protocols. And, of course, business trading with the European Union will face a lot more paperwork. Now, this individual here, uh, she's the European Commission president, Ursula von der Leyen. And uh, this is from uh, the Globe and Mail. And it has to say about how the uh, Brexit negotiations are going. They're ongoing. Taken from the article, it says, Britain is likely to leave the European Union without a trade deal in just under three weeks' time, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and European Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen said on Friday. And furthermore in this article, both sides say they want to reach agreement on arrangements to cover nearly $1 in annual trade, but talks are at an impasse. European Commission head von der Leyen told European leaders that a no deal was more likely than a deal. And so what do you do if you're the United Kingdom and it looks like you're not gonna have a deal? Huh, well you protect what's yours, your fishing industry and this, uh, if you can believe it, is one of the key uh, components uh, in terms of getting the deal, how they actually navigate, uh, no pun intended, uh, the waters that surround uh, the British uh, land, the United Kingdom land this is saying from Euronews, and it reads, plans to deploy a Royal Navy, the British Royal Navy, ships to patrol the United Kingdom coastal waters in the event of a no-deal Brexit on January 1st. And in addition, 14,000 military personnel have been put on standby. The move, which was confirmed by the UK Ministry of Defence on Saturday. This is no joke. So you have to protect your fishing uh, industry. Well, they'll do it. Uh, While the the fishing boats are doing their thing, the British Navy will patrol their waters sort of as it were as a a warning to any and all trawlers that might come in who are not now invited. So I thought what I'd do is just break it down in three simple points as to really why did the United Kingdom uh, want to have their Brexit. This is taken from Forbes. Number one, economics. This is simple. The opponents of the European Union argued that it is a dysfunctional economic entity. The European Union failed to address economic problems that had been developing since 2008. For example, 20% unemployment in Southern Europe. So, if you're the UK and you're contributing 12 billion, in one of the ways that you're contributing, you're contributing to 20% unemployment in some of the southern tier European countries. Greece, for example. How about the second point? Sovereignty. There's a growing distrust among multinational financial trade and defense organizations created after World War II. The European Union, the IMF, NATO, they're all good examples of this uh, multinational dysfunction. And finally, political elitism. The political leadership of Britain faced a profound loss, for the Leave voters rejected both the Conservative and Labour parties. Both parties had endorsed remaining in the European Union, and saw many of their members go into opposition on the issue and so these three reasons were really at the core of the brexit vote we want a better economics on our own want to have our own sovereignty over certain affairs and that even the politicians felt a certain political pressure to guide the debate in certain ways now as we sort of conclude what we find in the news is from the wall street journal what we need to know about the UK's prospective deal with the European Union, uh, just taken from uh, this week. The EU's most immediate goal has been to limit the ability of the United Kingdom to emerge post January 1 as a major competitor on its doorstep. That is why it has insisted that a free trade deal with a close neighbor like the UK must include some coordination of economic standards that its other free trade deals, for example, the likes of Canada and Japan, lack. So if you're the European Union and the UK is about to leave, you are insisting that you want Britain to allow you to have a free trade deal. And the UK is saying, no, it doesn't work in our favor to do so. And so they're at an impasse. And that's where we find the state of affairs today. Now as we sort of come into our concluding segment, very brief, if you have Ezekiel 38 open, not only were the ships of Tarshish the well-known feature of the coming and goings of this nation, there stands amongst all of Tarshish's history that they had one dominant focus and one driving character trait. Because you can't help but notice that in Ezekiel 38, if you have that back open, that at the time of the end, this will be the dominant trait of the British or the Tarshish power. You see in verse 12, that when Tarshish is introduced in this narrative in Ezekiel 38, there's this question that's posed to Gog as to what he is doing with his army. And verse 12 says... Are you come to take a spoil, to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places? These are all now inhabited, and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. And then in verse 13, you have the nation of Tarshish chimes in, with all the young lions thereof, and it says unto Gog, art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey? to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil. And you can't help but notice that when Tarshish is introduced opposing Gog and his army, they have one clear focus, and it's this. Verse 12 says that they were asked if they were going to take a spoil, take a prey. Verse 13, take a spoil, take a prey, take away cattle, take away goods, Take a great spoil. And you see, I suggest that this is important because to Tarshish, they had an ever keen eye on the value of riches. Now, I furthermore suggest to you that in verse 13, that when Tarshish lifts up their voice, and they say to go against his army, what are you doing? They're not doing it because of a benevolent means. Because Christ has not come yet. Tarshish is no more spiritual than any other nation on earth. They're not a God-fearing nation. When in Ezekiel 38 and verse 13, they lift up their cry unto God, not a chance. And you see, furthermore, when you look at Tarshish, throughout all their history, they were always focused on their riches. Because when you look at Second Chronicles chapter 9, it mentions the silver of Tarshish. Jeremiah 10 in verse 9, the silver of Tarshish. Ezekiel 27 and verse 12, the silver of Tarshish. Ezekiel 38 of verse 13, the silver of Tarshish. And Isaiah 60 in verse 9, the silver of Tarshish. You see, I suggest to you that this is the way to read verse 13 of Ezekiel 38. What are you doing, O Gog, to take away all this wealth of riches? It's not to defend Israel. It's to defend their own interests in economical affairs. Because in verse 13, there's no Christ in the earth. There's no proclamation to fear God. There's no submit to the one who rules upon the throne of David. Not yet. And England is anything but spiritual today. Because their dominant focus is on their riches. But if you come with me to Isaiah chapter 60, when Christ does come, that focus will change. For whereas now this Tarshish Britain power has a focus on their riches, Isaiah 60 says that when Christ does come, And he does issue his proclamations throughout all lands, Tarshish will change their focus. For it will not be on their riches, it will be on their God. Because here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1 Arise and shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Ah, so now the kingdom has begun, and now Christ is instilled upon the earth, and now all nations have to choose. Which will it be, their own wealth or the wealth of God? And it says in verse 2, For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and the kings to the brightness of thy rising. You see here in verse 3 of Isaiah 60, the minds of these kings will be changed. Gentile kings And they will issue proclamation amongst their own country as to which side that they will be on. They will give up their riches. And how do we know that? Because further in verse nine of Isaiah sixty, the prophet says, Surely the isles shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish first. Oh, these ships of Tarshish, they will change their purpose. They will no longer be dealing in commodities. They will no longer be seeking to trade and to build up their economical wealth. They will no longer be embroiled in Brexit negotiations to get the best deal that's possible for their people. No, they will come and they will use those ships and they will give up their wealth. And they will serve to bring God's people home and to honor the temple with all that they had because in verse 9 of Isaiah 60 it says that these ships of Tarshish who will be first they will bring God's sons from far and they'll bring their silver and they'll bring their gold and they'll bring all these things to honor the name of the Lord the God of Israel the Holy One of Israel because he has shined forth in all this earth his glory. And so what we have considered this night, written in Bible prophecy, we've considered their origin, we've considered their transportation, we've considered where they stand today, but we have also considered their destiny, their divine destiny that one day their focus in riches will turn to a focus in their God. And God willing soon, we will see these events unfold before our eyes as Britain one component in God's marvelous word and his prophetic will.